This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, transformative principal and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and the misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. And if you help us out with your donation, you will be making further progress in the Cybertraps podcast, which is a production of the Center for Cyberethics. The center is an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. So, Jethro, good to see you again. Good to see you as well, Fred. We've got a great guest today. Paul Shaw received his doctorate from the University of South Carolina. He has served as a teacher, coach, assistant principal, dean of men at St. Leo College, assistant superintendent, and superintendent. In 2000, he was recognized as as the state superintendent of the year in South Carolina, and then 10 years later as the state superintendent of the year in Georgia in 2010. He served on the board for the American Association of School Administrators. He teaches part-time for Piedmont University and currently serves as the Director of Educator Ethics for the Georgia Professional Standards Commission. Paul is married to Cindy, and they have a son, Brian, and a daughter, Ashley, and four grandchildren, Madison, Rogers, Keegan, and Shaw. 
Paul, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. So excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Jethro. I got to say, Paul, that that is a little bit like winning the Cy Young in two different leagues. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, what it means is I've worked with good people that made me look good. <laughs> yeah, there's obviously some truth to that, and that is pretty awesome. So, um, so we want to talk today about ethics, and you are uh, over the Georgia Professional standards commission and so you you deal with a lot of things going on we've had a bunch of people on recently talking about uh from the ppi conference in oklahoma city that we were at and and so we've we've had a a lot come about because of this and i'd like to start out by asking you what are the the things that you're dealing with now uh in today uh, relating to violations of your codes of conduct and and what are the uh, for lack of a better way of saying this, what are the things teachers are doing to get in trouble these days? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, we average about a half a percent of teachers uh, having cases open against them, which is not a lot when you consider only a half percent. But with 160,000 certified educators, that keeps us quite busy in the state of Georgia. And uh, I think probably right now uh, we we have probably an, we've seen an increase in the bad use of technology, particularly with teachers teaching online rather than being in the classroom. But we also still have uh, those that are participating that are having inappropriate relationships with with students. And then I think we also have, I think I've seen on the rise um, honesty, particularly when it comes to maybe completing paperwork for applications, uh, working with IEPs, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, we certainly uh, at one time had a lot of problems with standardized testing, but we've kind of gotten a big handle on that. And, and that one, we have very few problems now with that. So I do want to talk about that a little bit because Atlanta cheating in standardized testing was a big deal in the news a few years ago. And and you are saying now that problem is is just about gone. Can you talk about that, how you've caused that to go away over this time? Certainly. I, I would also say that, uh, you know, it is unfortunate that Atlanta became the poster child for cheating on standardized tests, but it really was just a few educators that put a black eye on the Atlanta public schools and on the state of Georgia. Uh, since that time, there have been several things we do. We monitor the testing uh, much more closely now. We also scan the test to make sure that there's not an inordinate amount of erasures because that was one of the problems that Atlanta uh, administrators were taking the test, erasing wrong answers and changing them to right answers. And so that is done every year. They do an analysis to determine how many erasures and particularly when there's erasures changing wrong answers to right answers. Uh, I also say that because of the how shall I say it, the, the interest in testing and it being done fairly and getting the right results. Uh, we do monitor it a little more closely, require uh, each school to be monitored. And then the state uh, from time to time with the State Department of Education will go into districts physically and, and monitor during the testing as well. And so I really think that because of the problem we had, people are much more aware that they need to follow the guidelines uh, in the testing. And, and we have also given additional training. 
Paul, you and I have had a chance to work on a variety of different projects together. And if I recall correctly, it was around the testing scandal that Georgia became very interested in the model code of ethics for educators. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how it played into it? Uh, well, we are interested in the model code of ethics because really that is the professional code, you know, now uh, our, our code of ethics in Georgia is more of, a, of a, a code of conduct. And we have, you know, 10 standards, but it's almost like I shall not. Whereas the code kind of is a little more professional, gives teachers more leeway to think about processes. And Anne-Marie Fenton, who is our director of assessment, has been instrumental as well in, in trying to roll out the uh, model code of ethics. We are working with several school districts, working with a couple of RISAs. And uh, we, we do believe that we're getting the message out that uh, we, you know, I think anything we can do to be proactive is important in our state. So can you talk a little bit about your your code of conduct you said is more like a thou shalt not kind of a thing and the code of ethics is is more professional. Can you talk a little bit more about the difference between those two and how how the model code of ethics, how that demonstrates that it's more professional yeah. than just thou shalt not? Well, the, the, the Georgia code of ethics has 10 standards. And it talks about things like, you know, legal plans, so that you need to follow the law, uh, code of conduct with, with you know, students. And so it talks about uh, the things you should not do with students. It talks about alcohol and drugs. It talks about public funds and property, testing, mandated reporting, things of that sort that you're kind of required to do or things that, quote, you shouldn't do uh, if you want to keep your certificate. Whereas the model code of ethics, I'm not as familiar with it as Anne-Marie, but I think there's really kind of just five kind of guiding principles that that talk teachers into thinking before they do something. And it's more of, a, I think, probably professional advice rather than what I would call a code of conduct. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to... I agree. Well, I was just going to say the same thing. I think that's a good, a good way to put it, that it gives you something to think about before you make a decision, a way to think about it, a framework for thinking about it that is much more effective, I think, than just saying, don't do this. And just as teachers in classrooms have rules that if they say, don't do this, but don't give a reason why or give kids an opportunity to think about it, it's much less likely for the kids to actually follow those rules. And I feel like that's the same thing with the code of ethics versus a code of conduct. And also, I, I want to commend NASDAQ because they have now followed up with some um, scenarios and discussions and a leader's guide, and that will make it easier to implement as well. And like I said, we are working with several school districts now on that and hope to really get it uh, really a lot of training done by the end of this school year. Oh, that's fantastic. So it, it seems to me that the idea of a code of ethics is to encourage conversation, right? To give educators an opportunity to raise questions that might be difficult. Have you found that that is particularly necessary with respect to technology issues and how, how people use technology? I, I think that just the experience of the COVID-19 and having to go online quickly without a lot of preparation has taught us more about being prepared. And then Fred, we were lucky enough to have you to provide us some guidelines and work with uh, some of our HR people in school districts to do things. And I do think that that when we first started, most, most school districts were completely unprepared to teach 
from a, a virtual setting. And we had certainly some uh, uh, learning curve, but we also had some real um, issues with teachers and behavior. And what some didn't realize is that they were on stage because not only were their students watching and listening, but many parents were home and watching and listening as well. And so it made it uh, where you were kind of having a uh, double-edged sword in how you conduct yourself and work with students uh, virtually. And I'd have to say that I do think it's harder to teach virtually than it is in person. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you on that. And what's even harder is teaching virtually and in person at the same time to the yes. same content to the same groups of kids. That is that is really challenging. And I we put teachers in this position of having to do things they've never done before with very little training, very, very little time to prepare for it. And I think the the fact that bad things are happening is to be expected because of that bad combination of how it started. Um, and also the challenge of the students, of some students not having, uh, you know, internet capacity, yeah. uh, some students not having access to computers, particularly if they were three or four in the same home and only maybe one or two computers that made it much more difficult as well. And I do think that we have gotten much better in Georgia with that, but I would think that uh, most people do prefer the face-to-face -face, uh, uh, teaching. Yeah, I, and I think kids prefer the face-to-face -face learning, the vast majority of them as well. Um, so, so this has been a really difficult time, and there have been some, some things that have cropped up because of it, more access to technology that have enabled people to make more mistakes easier. Um, and so what have and you faster. done... Or faster, <laughs> yes, good point. <laughs> so what have you been doing, Paul, to help help combat that in the moment so that, you know, it's not something that you could prepare for either, but what kinds of tools and strategies have you been giving teachers to help them make better choices? Well, we worked with a lot of HR people in the school systems and uh, we developed a guide, you know, some guidelines, you know, just recommended. We did not want to try to enforce them, but just trying to give some guidance on, on what types of rules or guidelines they should have when teachers are teaching online. And we also kind of reminded them that if they're online, they need to pay attention to their background to understand that maybe what is in their background doesn't need to be seen by uh, parents and students. And so we kind of tried to encourage that. I also encourage them to dress professionally. You'd be surprised that the number of teachers that's kind of started teaching and just had on maybe uh, pajamas and or maybe not even that much. And we had, we did have a couple of situations where teachers forgot the camera was on or thought they'd cut it off and got up and walked around and were kind of scantily clad. And mm -hmm. uh, we had to do that. And then we've had some to make inappropriate comments over, over the um, uh, computer as well. But I do think that, like I said, we, we have worked hard, schoolers have worked hard. And I think we, while I don't think we'll ever be what I would call experts at it, I think that we at least now are providing acceptable education to students. But I'll also say that it takes a highly motivated student, I think, to succeed on a continuous basis by doing it virtually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one of the other things I'd like to ask you about is there's been a lot in the news about teachers saying things and parents overhearing because they're now at home listening to the, to the conversations. Can you talk about any of those situations that you've encountered and what your perception is and what advice you'd give to teachers dealing with that? Well, I, I, first of all, I just tell teachers, 
to be professional at all times. I always like to say that ethical behavior is doing what's right when no one is looking. Uh-huh. Because if we can get everybody, all educators, to do what's right, even without being supervised, it'll go a lot better in, in having a great instructional program and a very professional school district and personnel. But we had some that were joking and one that was talking to the students, pulled out a gun and said, if you don't do your homework, I will come see you. And, uh, you know, some parents didn't, didn't like that. Uh, they really said it in a joking manner. But let me tell you what, if if, uh, if a student had pulled a gun at school, uh, I think we'd have come down very swiftly and we had to do the same thing with the teacher. We had another that had a, a fifth of liquor right there on his desk that you could see on the camera. And uh, that wasn't very good. And then sometimes you also had things in the background that uh, were inappropriate, whether it be another family member, uh, whether it be somebody walking around using profanity while the teacher was teaching. And um, of course, they also were able to see the home life of some of the students and what was going on in their environment <clears> as well, which made it, I think, um, they were a little unsure on whether they should report something like that that happened in the home. But as mandated reporters, we do, I tell people the three things we do most importantly is we teach the kids, we protect the kids, and then we we conduct ourselves professionally and ethically. And certainly we do want to keep the kids safe. And when we see a concern, it does need to be, be reported to the appropriate agency. Well, I think that's really such a great point because you're illustrating how the how technology in general, but specifically how the imposition of pandemic distance learning has heightened the ethical challenges for teachers. Because it's one thing to be a mandated reporter in a context where you can see the student in person and interact with them and and maybe ask a question or two. It's an entirely different thing to play that role when things are going on in the background. And so, go ahead. I was just saying, you're exactly right. And I think another problem is if you're at a school, you can talk with your colleagues, you can talk with your guidance counselor, you can talk with an administrator, you know, pretty immediately and, and get some feedback and guidance. But sometimes when you're teaching, you see something in the morning time, but you don't finish teaching until two or three in the afternoon, and then you got five or six other things to do, sometimes it slips your mind. And uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. So on this, I've had, as a principal, had many conversations with teachers about whether or not they should report something. And in almost every situation, I would always say, do you suspect that's the standard of proof is do you suspect that something bad is going on and do you suspect child abuse or neglect and if they if they said yes i suspect that that's happening then i would say then you need to report it if you don't suspect that that's happening then you shouldn't report it because you don't believe that you don't suspect that that's what's going on and that just asking that question of do you suspect i found really helped them clarify in their own minds yes or no this is something or it's not and you know especially with the the virtual stuff of seeing into the kids homes you get a different perspective than you would otherwise and i think that question is even more important it goes back to that professional expectation of them being professionals that they that you that they have the the power to determine whether or not they think something is there and i was in one school where the the culture was you report everything 
even if it, even if you didn't suspect. And I, I just thought that that was not the right way to do it, that we, our job is not to report everything. Like you said, our job is to protect the kids. And if we suspect something, we should report it. But if we don't, then we shouldn't be making what I would consider a, fri- a frivolous complaint if if we don't even suspect it ourselves. Can, can you give me any feedback on that, Paul? I, I think you gave good advice with that. The only other thing I would add is if you're in doubt, uh, you might want to at least you know, contact an administrator and talk over with them. Right. But again, I would say to you that if, if you don't believe it's child abuse, then you shouldn't report it. But if you have a, a doubt or a suspicion, by all means, talk with somebody else because I'd rather you, you'd be safe than sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for the kids' sake, you'd want to be want to be safe if you really suspect that. And I think that that's where you mentioned being in a school, being able to talk with people and, and hash it out makes a lot of sense because then, you know, sometimes you get stuck in your head and, and go down a path that you don't necessarily need to go down. So Paul, when we talk about technology, which Jethro and I do on occasion, (laughs) um, (laughs) um, given, given the, given the experience, Experience that you have, I won't. I won't try to quantify it in terms of years or so forth. But given your experience in the educational community, how would you how would you summarize the changes that you've seen, particularly with respect to ethics? How how has the onset of technology challenged educators? What what do you think are the most important takeaways? Well, as far as technology goes, I, I would say that um, the Younger teachers uh, with just a few years experience have really almost grown up with the social media. And I think that sometimes they're quick to jump on social media and type up something that really is not very professional. Uh, I've always told uh, educators that, that, you know, we are judged more harshly than others simply because we deal with two most important things people have, their children and their tax dollars. And I do see that, that, that some of the younger teachers in particular will put something on Facebook or Instagram or something like that that maybe was not the wisest thing to do, particularly in the smaller communities where everybody knows everybody. It just makes it that much more difficult. And even sometimes when they're not trying to do anything but type in, I agree. Uh, it's kind of like I had somebody tell me the other day that her paraprofessional was fired, and she got on, uh, e- you know, got on the email and sent, uh, uh, you know, emails to certain teachers or posted on Facebook. And some of the, the teachers uh, wrote back, you know, I like, right? And, and, and you know, and what they were doing was insulting the principal for get, getting rid of the paraprofessional who was being unprofessional. And so I, I just I have to caution people to think before they post because. Lots of people see it. Once you post it, you can't take it back. Uh, so how do we manage the day and age in which we live where people have lives outside of being a classroom teacher or paraprofessional and they have opinions and beliefs? How do we manage those beliefs that could be counter to what the, the predominant narrative is for that particular well, school or district? I had one HR person tell me that they recognize that teachers have you know, freedom of speech, the First Amendment rights. But what they want to caution teachers about is that when you post something, you could possibly lose your effectiveness in the classroom because of your political views or for 
whatever reason you're posting something that some people won't accept. And so that's, again, why I tell teachers that we're held to higher standards and they need to be real careful about posting something when they're known as a teacher rather than just a, a business person or a stay-at-home mom. And I think that's where we have the problem is some believe that they have uh, absolute power to say anything they want to, freedom of speech, particularly in their own time, in their own house. But it certainly uh, will rile up parents and have some that will just will request that their child be removed from the classroom and they lose their effectiveness. Well, Paul, I think you put your finger on the most important lesson for this younger generation <laughs> of educators, who all of whom I hope are listening to this, because it is critically important for people to realize that as much as we value the right to freedom of speech, it's not freedom from consequences, right? That if right. you say, I mean, there are lots of things you can say that will get you into very definite legal trouble, defamation, for instance, or you know, some kind of uh, causing imminent threat by yelling fire in a crowded you know, theater, the classic example. So part of, of what we're dealing with is this attitude that I think obviously social media has fed, that you should express everything on your mind at every instant of the day, regardless of what the consequences might be. So there's an educational piece to this. Do you think that the burden lies with uh, teacher prep programs, or do we need to go back further into middle school and high school to try to pe make people aware of this issue? Well, you know, so, so much falls on the colleges now to train teachers, and certainly it should be there as well. But I, I really think that we need, we have a responsibility in public education to teach kids or students uh, about the proper use of social media and for them to really think about something before they put it, particularly if this could be controversial, it's okay to take a stand. Sometimes it's okay to have personal beliefs, but sometimes you don't need to share all of that and your personal feelings with everybody out there that's, that's looking at your Facebook page or, or whatever. So I think it needs to start in the schools. We need to teach kids that there is a uh, some expectations and proper roles. Certainly social media can be used uh, for wonderful things, and but it can also create havoc for you. Yeah, I think that's really good advice and definitely something that you uh, one of the things you said that I really appreciated was that if you are known as an educator and that that separates you. So if you are just a person in the community, that's one thing. But if you are known as an educator because you have friended all your former students on Facebook and all the all the parents know you as Mrs. or Mr. So-and-so, the teacher, then that, that changes things. I think that's that's really insightful. Paul, thank you so much for being on the Cybertraps podcast. This was a great conversation. I think we just barely scratched the surface here. And let me just say one little thing, Jeff. Yeah. You know, back in the old days when I was, uh, you know, maybe teaching and coaching and, and administration, when you'd go to the store to buy alcohol, many educators would go to the neighboring town to do oh. it. So, you know, so they wouldn't run into their students or students' parents. And now I would say almost the same thing with, with uh, technology. Be careful of who, what you're posting because you got people reading. And, you know, what you're underscoring there, Paul, which is a great point to close on, is that we all live in one big small town right now. Yeah. <laughs> we should really be aware of who's out there. Well, thank you for this opportunity and thank you for what you're doing to get the word out. We appreciate you. Well, you too, Paul. It's really a pleasure to have you here. 
thank you again for joining us. Thank you. So that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cyber, cyber security, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions, topic suggestions, or guest suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this podcast. So please leave us a five-star rating and review. We appreciate you having you in our audience and look forward to having you join us for our next live episode on Monday. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master's schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.